Hi, everyone. Welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. The coronavirus pandemic began over a year ago, and for indigenous communities, that's meant a year without powwows. We'll talk to reporter Lauren J. Mapp about the effect that's had. Then, this week's guest on Name Drop San Diego is metal cellist Tina Guo. Opinion editor and producer Abby Hamblin will tell us more. First, the news. The San Diego Convention Center will become a temporary shelter for a number of unaccompanied children seeking asylum, authorities said Monday. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and San Diego County Board of Supervisors Chairman Nathan Fletcher said they responded to a request by Federal Health and Human Services. Officials did not provide information on the number of children, where they are coming from, or where they're likely to go. In February, 9,297 unaccompanied minors were apprehended crossing the border, according to the Pew Research Center. That's up 63% from January. Mayor Todd Gloria, Councilman Raul Campillo, and other officials Monday urged San Diego residents to apply for an $83 million rental relief program that launched last week. The city of San Diego's COVID-19 Housing Stability Assistance Program can pay up to 80% of past due rent and utility bills. To qualify, families must have household incomes at or below 80% of the San Diego area median income. That's about $92,400 a year for a family of four or $64,700 for an individual. To qualify, renters must show at least one member of the household lost wages due to COVID-19. Students in California are now allowed to sit three feet apart in classrooms instead of four or six feet. That's according to new guidelines state officials issued over the weekend. The new guidelines will put pressure on local officials to consider a faster and more complete reopening of campuses that have been closed for over a year in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Local education leaders, however, will have the final say. Powwow is a celebration of life and renewal, but those celebrations have come to a halt during the coronavirus pandemic. It's now been a whole year without any powwows or social gatherings, and without any planned events on the horizon, many indigenous people are ready to return to normalcy. Lauren J. Mapp is a reporter at the UT covering family caregiving, elder care, and indigenous communities. Lauren, before we get to the news, I was hoping that you could share some background. You wrote in your story sort of the history of powwows and the cultural significance there. Can you share that with us? Of course. So with powwows or with celebrations in the indigenous community, that was something that was always a part of indigenous cultures, um, whether it was a tribe celebrating their um celebrating our harvest or if it was tribes coming together to celebrate a treaty or you know to to join together into a confederacy or a union and but it wasn't until the you know mid to late 1900s that we really see powwows develop the way that they did today uh the eight the 1800s and early 1900s was a period a period of great erasure in indigenous communities um whether that was people being removed, forcibly removed from their lands and brought to, um, you know, different places where they were forced onto reservations, like you saw with the Trail of Tears. Uh, we see uh, in, in history throughout the country, you see uh, boarding schools where children were brought to for, uh, forcibly assimilate and forget about their culture and their traditional languages. And, uh, and traditional languages and religion and culture 
was actually outlawed until the mid-1900s. And so as the American Indian movement uh, started to gain steam in the 70s, and as you know, people started to really want to honor their, their past traditions, you see the uprising of these um, powwows as huge celebrations of culture, of a way for people to pass on their traditions to children and you know, their children's children, and as a way to just celebrate life and pray and you know sing and dance yeah that's really beautiful but it's shocking to me that you know you, you mentioned the, the 50s the 60s the 70s like that's not long ago at all you know that, that this stuff wasn't considered legal yeah it's it's you know very recent history um let me just pull it up really quickly but i believe it was 1978 actually when the american indian religious freedom act was enacted so before that, it was illegal to be Native. It was illegal to to practice your cultural traditions and your religious traditions. Well, okay, so clearly there's so much significance and so much importance to having powwows, to having these gatherings. I know that not having powwows for a year has had a lot of effects on Indigenous people. Um, but first, can we talk about the psychological and emotional toll? What have you seen there? So yeah, so when speaking with people, throughout the local indigenous communities, um, a lot of people, they, they feel like they've lost their heartbeat. The drum, hearing the drum at a powwow is like hearing the heartbeat of the community. And to not be able to gather together and sing and dance and pray has been you know, really impactful on the spirituality of indigenous people and the way that they, you know, they celebrate their culture and, and are able to be proud of who they are. I know that it's no replacement, but have people been able to gather over Zoom or has there been any sort of, um, you know, picking up on this digitally at all? Yeah, so really early on in, in the pandemic, a Facebook group popped up called Social Distance Powwow. And it's been really great to be part of that community and see all these posts of people from all around um, Turtle Island or, um, you know, Indian country, however you call this area and see how people are, you know, sharing their dances, sharing their beadwork and their crafts, sharing their songs. Um, there's also, I'm Ganyangahega uh, or Mohawk, which is part of the Haudenosaunee community. And we have a Haudenosaunee social dance Facebook group as well, where people share our songs, which are different than what you would hear at a typical powwow. And so there have been all of these movements of people gathering together. My little brother actually competed in a virtual hoop dance competition and I believe he got second place which is very awesome we were nice. so proud of him and um so yeah so you do see a lot of these virtual celebrations gathering but for some people the virtual space doesn't really work for them um, especially if you're talking about you know elders in the community that might not have access to the internet or might not have used the internet in this way you know in previous times and you know with you know, we're all experiencing a lot of Zoom Zoom burnout and like internet burnout from having to socialize this way for a year now. And so it's not a forever solution. It won't it won't work for us for always. Can you talk about the economic impact? Um, you wrote that the Gathering of Nations is the world's largest powwow. It's held in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It attracted nearly 3,000 dancers and 91,000 spectators in 2019 with an economic impact of $22 million. Um, I mean, that's a lot of money. This is clearly uh, you know, a big source of income, a big driver of business. What has been the impact here locally? So 
It's really hard to find local statistics when it comes to the economic impact of, of tribes um, of not having powwows for a year. Um, it's not something that's really studied that widely. It was really hard to find kind of nuggets of information for this story. Um, but just to kind of you know explain what the economic impact is, it's not just the impact that the powwow has on the community that hosts it. Uh, there's vendors from all around the country that go to uh, travel around the pow powwow circuit to sell their beadwork or um, dream catchers or um, traditional clothing, different items like that. They sell food like Three Sisters rice and fry bread and strawberry drink. Um, and that's how they make their income for the entire year is by traveling the powwow circuit from like mid spring through the fall. Uh, you also have dancers and singers who um, either compete or perform at different events. And that's how they make their money is by competing. And you can win, you know, sometimes into the thousands of dollars at, you know, at a powwow uh, for one competition. Changing topics, you wrote a story about how COVID has affected Indigenous communities here locally. In, in terms of cases, um, how have they fared? Um, so there's been about 794 cases um, of COVID in, among Indigenous people locally um, based on the county's numbers. The It's a little bit different, though, if you look at the clinics. Uh, there are four Indian Health Services clinics throughout the county, and they've they've had about 1500 a little over 1500 cases of covid within their communities but they serve both native and non-native patients and, th and there's a an effort underway to immunize indigenous people how is that going um it's going slow but steady just about everybody i spoke with for that story uh, basically shared that they have about a 50 percent hesitancy rate when it comes to vaccinating people um people are wary because it's a new technology, it's a new vaccine, and the indigenous community throughout the country has been burned before. You see in in history, you see um, people, uh, women were forcibly sterilized in the 70s, and this women as young as like 15 were forcibly sterilized and unable to have children because of that. Uh, in Arizona, I believe, the Havasupai uh, tribe, they actually had in the 90s, they had enlisted Arizona State University researchers to do some genetic studies on, on their DNA to see why there was such a um, high prevalence of diabetes in their community. And their DNA was misused by the researchers without their permission. And so you have a lot of instances like that um, where that have ca caused this kind of historical trauma or distrust of the federal government and of medical Western medicine, um, med medical practitioners as well. And so that's a kind of big kind of fight that these clinics have to have to engage in. They have to kind of peel back all those layers of mistrust and and try to convince the communities they serve that this these vaccines are safe and that they will help them with longevity for their people. Yeah, I mean, are there efforts by the government or by healthcare workers to address this and sort of reassure people? And how is that going? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that a lot of communities are doing is enlisting the elders. So in a lot of cases, um, the people that I talked to for the story, that they're, the elders of the community were really on board with being vaccinated. And then when you get into the kind of younger generations, the 
you see you know more of the hesitancy and so the elders are coming out and they're speaking and you know being recorded for social media campaigns and sharing like I got the vaccine I'm healthy and happy and safe you can be too and that's been helping a little bit with um, combating some of that hesitancy. And finally, you are an indigenous person, you're a dancer. I know that the loss of powwows and these social gatherings affects you too. What has the loss meant for you personally? So for for me, I grew up as a, you know, young Ganyangahaga Mohawk girl um, doing fancy shawl dance and, and smoke dance and different styles of dance as well. And we spent our entire summers going to powwows. Since I've been out in California, I haven't spent as much time at powwows. Um, part of that was not having a car for most of the time that I lived out here and a lot of the powwows that are local are pretty far away. But I finally was at a point in my life where school was was settled down, you know, school was over for me and I you know have a full-time job that's mostly, you know, weekdays and I was very much looking forward to starting to go to powwows again when the pandemic started and to not be able to reconvene with that part of my culture that's been so important to me has been pretty emotionally trying, which is why I wanted to write the story. Lauren Mapp, thank you so much for joining me. And also I wanted to say to listeners that there was a really amazing and beautiful video that accompanied this story online. So we'll link to that on social media. But thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Now let's turn to opinion. Abby Hamblin is an opinion editor and producer at the UT. She and I co-host Name Drop San Diego, a podcast where we talk to fascinating people that shape our region. Our guest this week is Tina Guo. She's a classical and electric cellist whose music has appeared in movies like Wonder Woman, Top Gun Maverick, and video games like Call of Duty. Abby, our guest this week is Tina Guo. She is a metal cellist. Um, Tell us her story. Yeah, she has a really amazing story. Obviously, I don't want to give too much of it away, but I just think this is somebody who has a unique spot in the music world. Like, I don't know if there's anyone else out there who can say they do what she does. She basically was born and raised a classical cellist. Her parents are music teachers, and she just was one of those kids who was just practicing nonstop and went to college on a music scholarship and kind of along the way in middle school and high school uh, started to be exposed to metal and some different genres of music than the classical music she grew up with. And then in college, she really uh, discovered the electric cello and all the things that it could do. And she's gone on to become insanely successful. I mean, she works with Hans Zimmer. She's been heard on some of the biggest video games and movies, not to mention she plays around the world. Uh, in different symphonies. So a uh, pretty amazing story and someone from right here in who grew up in Rancho Penasquitos. Yeah, she is so incredible. And I love that like when we asked her about how exactly she got into metal cello, we'll let her explain in her own words pretty soon here. But um, she basically said she wasn't allowed to listen to that stuff growing up. And so she's kind of based a career on things she wasn't allowed to do <laughs> as a child. So kind of rebellious, but uh, you know, I think her family's supportive. What else stood out to you about the interview? Yeah, I was going to say, not to mention um, something else that's unique about her is not just that she plays so uniquely, but she's found a way to express herself through her music. Um, Obviously, 
there's parameters of how you play music, but she wears amazing costumes. Some of her music videos to go with her music are full of just these truly uh, elaborate looks. And her background has been, you know, with Cirque du Soleil and some of these video games that have just such cool visuals. And she kind of incorporates those things not only through what inspires her personally, but what what kind of music she's creating for these video games and music. And she dresses up and, you know, the other day she posted on Instagram, she was just at home recording, but she was fully dressed up, you know, to get herself totally in the zone for the sort of music she was creating. So not just someone who can create amazing music, but who who puts her whole self and um, a sense of kind of fashion and creativity uh, into her look. She told us she's inspired by Bjork. So if that gives you any idea. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. It is like everything she does is so theatrical. If you haven't seen her videos, I would recommend going to YouTube, searching Tina Guo. That's G U O. Um, each each music video is kind of like a movie in itself. You know, it's just so yeah. there's so much attention to detail, and, and the music is so kind of epic. Okay, well, let's go out uh, with a clip from the interview. This is Tina Guo on Name Drop San Diego. Growing up, um, I was raised in an extremely conservative Chinese, uh, both parents being music teachers. So you can just imagine that, you know, triad combination that was intense. Um, So I was raised in a very, um, very conservative environment, which was great for forced practice. It was like a boot camp, basically, all my childhood to to play the cello. Um, And you know, that being said, I, I was a bit of an angsty child and teen and young adult, uh, probably due to feeling so kind of restricted in my expression and, you know, just life in general. Um, so I remember the very first time that I was exposed to heavier music because we weren't allowed to listen to any other types of music uh, other than classical at home. And then maybe the occasional radio, you know, interference that we would hear here and there. But um, I heard uh, Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar, which is uh, not quite metal, more industrial, but heavy, heavy stuff. Uh, and then Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. So those, literally those two albums were like my entire, um, that's all that I knew outside of classical music because I borrowed it from some middle school friends when I was living in uh, Penasquitos. And it really opened up my mind. And when I heard Slash's solos on the Guns N' Roses, you know, music, I was actually thinking, oh my God, like, how do I do that? I want to, I want to sound like that. I want to, I wish I play the guitar, you know, but I played the classical cello and wore really thick glasses. So, you know, it took, <laughs> it took <laughs> years for it to fully manifest. Uh, but it really wasn't until I went to college. Thankfully, I, I did get a, a scholarship for cello performance because that's basically the only thing that I knew how to do. I can't even ride a bicycle to this day. Um, so I thought, okay, I guess if I want to go to college, I need to be a cellist. To hear our interview with Tina Guo, please find Name Drop San Diego in your favorite podcast app and subscribe. You can also find the interview and a longer story about her on our website at sandiegouniontribune.com. I'm Christy Totten, host of your San Diego News Fix. Thanks for listening. <laughs>